I just think it's, a, it's an interesting and, and kind of sad comment to see that the world continues to atrophy. And it's, it's a socially and spiritually telling thing to see what it amounted to with, without love, you know, if I may <laughs> paraphrase myself. I mean, without real love, you know, all you need is love, but they weren't talking about the same love that Paul was talking about in Corinthians, you know, or that, that Jesus was talking about. It was a different love. It was basically love yourself. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another episode of Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster, the podcast where we talk about songs from the decade that maybe were overlooked at the time or have since been forgotten. Back with us again is radio promoter Chris Hauser to talk about a few of the artists that he helped out during our favorite decade. This time around, Mr. Hauser talks chiefly Phil Keggy, Tony O'Kay, and our first featured artist, the choir. They were the youth choir, and I found them because I had a Christian rock radio show in Syracuse on Love 105. I had a Saturday night Christian rock radio show that I started, I think, in 83, and that went till 87 when I left the uh, the radio station, and it was called Press It On, because it was uh, named after a Bob Dylan song from the Saved record. And so I had run of the place. I could play whatever I wanted, and because... We were a radio station, and because we reported our charts to the national charts, the record companies all knew who we were. They would call me. That was a highlight of my week, was getting phone calls from record companies, talking to them about records I loved. And so uh, Maranatha Music started with Undercover, The Ultra Boys, Youth Choir. So I was a fan. I don't know that I'd ever seen them live. Oh, you know what? I did see them live at Cornerstone 84, the first Cornerstone Festival. And I did an interview with them. They were a three-piece during that time period. And so I was fairly obsessed with the music. And then, yeah. So the original lineup was Steve Hindelong. And Dar- Gary Doherty. Right. And a guy named Mike Sauerbray was their bass player. And so that's who I saw in 84. They came to Murr Records around 85, 86. They ended up doing Diamonds and Rain. I played some of that record on the radio in Syracuse, and then I got hired at Murr in 87. I went to Murr Records in LA, and they were the hottest label in the land. They had Amy Grant, Russ Taff, soon to be Phil Keggy, the choir, the Imperials, and so, especially just with Amy Grant and Russ Taff together on one label, to have that as my, as my launching point was pretty amazing. They also had Bash in the Code, uh-huh. And Sheila Walsh, and the last Sam Phillips record. So there was the turning, and then when I, she was Leslie Phillips. Yes, she was Leslie Phillips with the turning, mm-hmm. and then uh, when I came in in the fall of '87, there was one more Leslie Phillips song from a Greatest Hits record, 
that didn't go very far, and that was it for her. But anyway, I come to Murr Records. Here's what I want to say about this, is that I come from New York, upstate New York, and I'm pretty conservative, and quickly in the in the grand scheme of the label politics i was the guy they called on to pray at a meal or <laughs> i i was just super christian uh-huh. and super serious about my faith and well i mean that's not such a bad thing but did you get a sense that the others won't work uh, i i i had it there was just there was some division between me and some other people in the staff, maybe. N- not a huge deal, right. but I just felt like maybe they were like, oh, they were like liberal uh-huh. Southern California Christians or something like that. And I was just more right. uptight and straight-laced and, and that kind of thing. So maybe they're culturally different. Culturally different, yeah, for sure. And so Tom Willett was their A&R guy, and they were preparing for the new record. He comes and I'll never forget, I'm sitting I'm in my desk... And he's standing in the doorway, and he look, he's looking down at me in more ways than one, which I totally deserved. And uh, he says, we're thinking about naming the new album Chase the Kangaroo. And I said, man, that doesn't sound very Christian. Very, very biblical. Very biblical or Christian to me. I don't remember many kangaroos at the uh, crucifixion. <laughs> and and uh, Will it looks at me and says, Oh, maybe we should call it Holy Lord God Almighty then. Wow. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I was embarrassed. So it was kind of a smackdown. I was embarrassed, <laughs> but I can look back on it and go, yes, of course. I mean, right. so the point of it was Steve Hindelong wrote the song Chase the Kangaroo because they'd come off tour, they made no money. They were gone for like months and came back and had nothing to show for it. Probably were in debt, right. you know, and they had all these bills piling up, so he had to go out and dig ditches mm. at, off tour. And so one day he was just like digging so hard and he had this vision of like the Bugs Bunny where Bugs Bunny digs so deep through the earth that he comes out in the upside down and he's in China. And Steve Hindelong like looked at a globe and was like, actually, if I dug straight through from Southern California, I would end up in Australia. Uh, and so I feel like I'm chasing the kangaroo as I'm digging this ditch. Okay. So this is where the song came from, okay. and thus the album title and the thing that I had a problem with. In your defense, <laughs> and you are a promoter, and you're trying to get Christian radio to play stuff. You know, people are a little bit like, what? Yeah, yeah. I was so earnest. Tim, I was so earnest in all this stuff. All right. And Steve Hidalong comes and delivers. I might still have it somewhere. He delivers the lyrics for a song called Clouds. Clouds around And it's about the mystery of God. And this song is really beautiful to me. It's actually very worshipful. And um, 
Clouds are round about you, shadows veil your eyes. It's from the Psalms, I, I believe, maybe Ecclesiastes. Well, I bring that lyric sheet home, and I dig in on my Bible, and I literally find a proof text for every line in the song. Wow. And I bring it back the next day and show it to him, and he looked at the all the Bible verses was like, what? <laughs> How did you find all this? So he had just come up on his own? Yeah. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> I was like... Okay, the choir has not had airplay on AC radio, adult contemporary radio. I'm going to go do it. And that was a thing in a lot of liner notes. I remember some albums, every song had a couple Bible verses referencing, so you sure. could kind of know what they were talking about, I assume, or maybe just justify what they were talking about. Yeah, I yeah. I might have that around, and I really, if I find it, I should frame it, because mm-hmm. it really is such a snapshot of my early record career, and kind of an, a version of my faith that's a bit in my rearview mirror. Right. So also on that Chase the Kangaroo record, <laughs> which in some seasons of my life has been a top 10 record, it is probably, that and Amy Grant Lead Me On are probably my two favorite albums I've ever been affiliated with in my career. I, I would have to think a little bit harder about it. but And so there was a song on there called Everybody in the Band. And it's Steve Hindelong singing with an acoustic guitar. Everybody in the band appreciates Mark. And they're talking about Mark the roadie. Everybody in the band appreciates Mark. And everybody in the band appreciates Mark. And everybody in the band appreciated Leo. The original version of the song says he smokes a lot of camels and drives the van all night. And even when the mix is bad, he says it sounds all right. Everybody in the band appreciates Mark. So this was a real roadie. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, road manager for them. Well, the label, someone higher up, not Tom and A&R, not anybody in our office, but somebody in the corporate office was like, I don't think we should be putting out a record that says he smokes a lot of camels. And so uh, Steve rewrote the line, and instead of he smokes a lot of camels, he wrote, with tears for man's condition, he drives the van all night. <laughs> as, as really a, a little bit of a screw you kind of thing, you know, like, okay, you won't take that line. I'm going to give you right. something right out of Calvinism or something. Yeah, you know? right, right, right. So uh. <laughs> I will never forget going to their studio in uh, Orange County, driving down from LA uh, to hear the entire record top to bottom and they had friends and family in and it was amazing. Those two guys really mean a lot to me. Steve and Derry, I still, I'm always, always pulling for them, always giving money to every Kickstarter project they ever come up with for a new record. I just adore them. And so it was Chase the Kangaroo and we had like three number ones on that, on that record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mostly like in the rock or the CHR world, mm-hmm. Clouds did not get anywhere. Oh. Yeah, it died. In spite of your efforts. It died a thousand deaths. <laughs> and that was kind of one of the first things I could see was like, even if I'm passionate about something, the person on the other end of the line is not necessarily going to just buy it. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a certain sound that they're going for. And Clouds was not it. But we tried. It's still one of my all-time favorite songs. And then the next record, the 1989, was Someone to Hold On To. Then they 
Robin Spurs, who is a bass player, mm-hmm. and she came in. She ended up marrying Mark uh, with Tears for Man's Condition, Smokes a Lot of Camels, yeah. Mark. They ended up marrying, and so she was with them on that tour for uh, to, to support that. They played a GMA rock night at the Cannery, and they opened the show. This had to be GMA April of 89. They were so amazing. The choir was so amazing. Then Steve Taylor played, and Steve Taylor started with songs from I Predict 1990, and in that, he started with Harder to Believe Than Not To, and they had a four-piece string quartet and Sandy Patty sang the operatic voice. Really? She came out and sang the operatic oh. voice. And then they, they came out and just blew the doors off the entire place. They ended with Dave Perkins coming on stage pre-Chigal Guevara and doing Pass It On to the tune of Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild. And it was just historic. And then one of the biggest bands who will remain nameless came on afterwards and people were so wrung out and completely worn down by Steve Taylor's blistering set. Like two-thirds of the audience left left. uh, and the very... Big, big selling band afterwards had like a nearly empty room to play to. It was a really oh, yeah. a bizarre experience. Yeah. But That's so. pretty cool on Sandy Patty's part because, you know, she always kind of played the very stoic, uh-huh. uh, stuffy... Steve gave her a bouquet of roses as, and thanked her as, oh, as yeah. she depart- as she walked off stage. But I will never forget. Yeah. It was an amazing, amazing night. So the choir uh, kind of unveiled Robin Spurs that night, okay. April of 89, that was a, an amazing record. We had, I think, two or three more number ones on that one. They did a, a, a video. They did a mm-hmm. bunch of music videos that Mark Hurd actually helped them produce and direct those videos really? for that record. Yeah. So, so good. Then they ended up getting out on the road with Russ Taff in that 89 to 90 time period and uh, being on the road uh, with Julie Miller. Mm-hmm. And then in 1990 was uh, Circle Slide. And Circle Slide, to a lot of choir fans, is viewed as kind of the pinnacle for them. And it, it is. I mean, it's a, probably a close second for me uh, of, of my favorite choir records. And that was one of the hard things, is that, that they unveiled the choir Circle Slide record at a listening party, possibly at the studio that the Sound City documentary was done at uh, with the Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure that that was the studio that we were out, that we were at, and then we had this listening party in LA. Within two months, I was leaving Murr Records. And when I gave my notice at Murr Records, and I sat with some people, I just cried and cried and cried, because I did not want to leave that choir record. Right. It was so moving and powerful, profound to me, and they, they meant so much to me personally. And that for me to have to walk out, that was probably the thing that hurt the most from an artistic standpoint was walking away from the choir in the fall of 90. I saw them on the Circle Side tour. I believe they played at 328 Performance Hall, if you remember that place. Sure, oh yeah. And afterwards, I was just kind of hanging around with a friend, and 
there was a, a gaggle of people and they were carrying snow globes and they were calling over Dan Dan the, Michaels yeah, yeah the he's a collector yeah <laughs> so what's the deal with that uh, that can be seen in the uh, wide-eyed wonder video he just started collecting snow globes and it became known around that time period especially because of the video that got out he's just a funny bird does he still have a like a whole room full of snow globes in fact in august prayer chain and the choir and dakota motor company are going to play nashville saturday august 4th and they sold out mercy lounge and they moved it to the cannery ballroom a much larger venue downstairs and the night before, I think on Friday the 3rd, the choir is actually doing like an acoustic set at Dan's house mm. for a high dollar ticket amount. And so I'm I'm hoping to have an answer for you. It'll probably be a little bit of a tour. And yeah. everybody, here are my snow globes. If not, you can say, hey, where's the restroom? And just wander around <laughs> the house, snooping and taking photos. Right. Right. put out these companion pieces on their anniversaries, like a double disc of Chase the Kangaroo. They have the remastered disc, and then on the secondary disc, the band sits in a studio, and they play the record through, and then they're ta- telling stories mm. throughout it. It's very touching. In the Chase the Kangaroo one, they tell a story about me. They write songs I need to hear. No one can deliver a guitar tone like Derry Doherty, in my opinion. And Steve Hinlong writes the lyrics, uh-huh. right, right. And he's the drummer for folks. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he also, by the way, co-wrote God of Wonders, the worship song that was a huge hit in the late 90s, early 2000s. Still gets played on Christian radio every day and will until Jesus comes back. <laughs> I will call your name by Next up, Phil Keggy. I mean, Phil Keggy is is just such an amazing, dear, dear man. Such a gentle heart and such an amazing talent. And I was obsessed with Phil Keggy all through the 80s. Played his music from the late 70s on the radio all the way to the to 87. For folks that may happen to not know his history, can you give you a brief rundown? Yeah, yeah, sure. He uh, grew up in Ohio in the Cleveland area. He formed a band called Glass Harp that toured with tons and tons of artists, uh, tons of mainstream artists in the late 60s, early 70s. They were a three-piece power trio. at Electric Ladyland Studios that Jimi Hendrix built. So out of that, there was a rumor that came, which is not true. Right. It Supposedly, it was on the Dick Cavett show that Dick Cavett was interviewing Jimi Hendrix and said, what's it like being the greatest guitarist in the world? Jimi Hendrix supposedly says, don't ask me, ask Phil Keggy. But no video has ever proven that that was actually said. Right. But we can be pretty sure that they 
kind of ran into one another here and there. He was aware of Phil's existence. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I would say. But Ted Nugent's got a great quote. Something like, if Phil Keggy could ever drop the Jesus crap, he could save the world with his guitar playing. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's totally nude. Totally nude. <laughs> Oh, I love that quote so much. It's pretty close. That's pretty pretty close to, to dead on, right. on that quote. Keggy played uh, in a band called David, and then they backed up Second Chapter of Acts. Mm-hmm. There's a triple LP of Second Chapter of Acts and Phil Keggy with a band called David called How the West Was Won. Uh, His cuts are fantastic. Oh. It's one of those lucky moments that the, the recording was going. I know. Yeah. Can you dig what this means? All the angels in heaven above Rejoice when there's a soul saved All the angels in heaven above Rejoice when there's a soul saved I also kind of had some proximity to him in the 70s where he was with Lynn Nichols, Phil Madeira, Scott Ross of CBN uh, TV. Uh, They were all together at a commune in the early se- early to mm-hmm. mid '70s, called Love In, the Love In community in Dryden, New York, outside of Ithaca, south of Syracuse, and that's where the Phil Keggy band actually made a record called Emerging, which is just one of the great CCM records, in my opinion, of all time. is close to my favorite Phil Keggy record. It's jazzy. There's some great, great improvisational playing on it. Struck by the power of heaven. Struck by the works you do. Struck by your healing power. Oh, I'm struck by the love that comes from you. I kind of do have kind of a fun personal story where my wife and I moved to LA because I'm at Murr Records and we don't know tons of people and we don't have our kind of our social circles figured out yet. We're still like out looking for churches. And on Saturday night, we went to Thousand Oaks. About an hour away from where we lived in Glendale to see Larry Norman in concert. And before Larry Norman comes on stage, I'm hearing what sounds like Phil Keggy music, but I've never heard these Phil Keggy songs before. So I go to the sound man, maybe during intermission or maybe at the end of the set, end of the whole show, and I said, Hey, um, my name's Chris Hauser. I'm the new radio promoter at Murr Records. I'm a big Phil Keggy fan. That sounds like Phil Keggy, but I don't know those songs. He says, uh, my name's Eddie Keggy. I'm his nephew. <laughs> and those are the demos for his next record, which is coming out on Murr, called uh, Sunday's Child. Really? Wow. So I heard it in January of 1988. So now Phil had been signed to Murr. Did uh-huh. you, were you aware of that? I maybe barely knew that. I'm not sure. I might have. It's possible that I actually came to the office on Monday and said, "Uh, did we sign Phil Keggy? (laughs) That actually might have been the conversation. Right. Right. And that there had been really no talk about it Uh at that point. So Lynn Nichols, the A&R guy, and all of them worked on that record Mm -hmm. uh, all through 88. Jack Joseph Puig, uh, who's gone on to so much mainstream success, he was the engineer and, and probably produced some of it as well. Monday's child was feeling blue. Tuesday's child who noticed you. Wednesday's child is 
Sunday Child was the first single that we released, and I sent postcards out so that they arrived on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at radio stations all over the country. Different black and white images of Phil. Providing that the postal system... I, I checked it out. I worked it out. Really? Beforehand, I sent test postcards to regions all over the country and had them tell me, okay, this is when we got this card. So I, I worked out this graph and everything. <laughs> I, again, I I was a little nutty during that time period. So people You're were dedicated. People were getting postcards on a Tuesday that said Tuesday's Child is full of woe or Wow. And so we had a number one song on that and uh, gosh, and just to have Russ Taft and Randy Stonehill singing with him on different songs. It sounded like they're having a blast. Oh. I, I gotta say even it's not a knock on their other records, but I mean, it sounds like that's a, like a fun record as opposed to other ones a little bit more serious. Yes. You know? There's a song on that record called Big Eraser that Lance Demers wrote. Lance Demers was in the Lovin' community in the 70s, was in a group called the Wall Brothers Band. It had been a writer and stuff, and Le that was a Lance Demers track, which is really, really interesting. Steve Taylor heard that Lance Demers song and said that's what I want to be writing those are the kinds of things that that's a really really cool idea I think this song is actually about people erasing uh, embarrassing parts of our country's history Man, that record was so great, and his tours during that time period with Phil and John opening were amazing, a duo from England. David Raven on drums, I think, and then Mike Mead on drums eventually. When I talked to Phil a few episodes ago, he mentioned that it didn't sell well. Is that... Yeah. Really? Yeah. But I thought it was a hit. I don't know numbers or anything, but we were totally prepared for it to be massive. We really, really were. And and I think some of it, and we can get into this in another podcast. Yeah, all you have to do is Google right now. If you're listening to this and want want to know, see the dark underbelly, Google Chris Hauser, the Play It Stupider Sessions. Right. There's some of that in the mm -hmm. midst here. And we're, we're going to get to that on a future We will get to that, episode, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's just the element of the, the people who listen to adult contemporary music that were buying the records, by mm -hmm. and large. This was probably a little too hipster, a little too cool. April of 1990, we do a sales conference at a place called Footloose in Euless, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, right below the uh, DFW airport. And Footloose is a Christian dance club. Mm -hmm. Like they have concerts and kids could come and dance and listen to Christian music four nights a week or something. And so we rented it out for a sales conference and we were going to unveil Eric Champion as a solo artist uh, on Murr. We were going to try and get Michael O'Marty in there. It, that did not end up happening because he had a solo record coming. Phil Keggy had a new record called Find Me in These Fields that we released. And then One Bad Pig. <laughs> and so those four artists were going to be on the, on the bill. So One Bad Pig had all of their band instruments set up. And Keggy played acoustic. So my idea was 
to tell Phil that day, Phil, here's the thing. All of your label family and sales department are here. 120 people are all here. And we've got all these instruments. How about for your final song, Dan Postema gets up on the bass, the A&R guy at the label at the time, and then I get up on drums and we play a song from Sunday's Child, like Tell Me How You Feel. Listen to me, I'll be there looking. Watch me, I'll be looking for you. I'll be there looking your way. Tell me how you feel on the inside. When the spotlight's not around. And we could show the entire workforce how the label is willing to get in there and sweat it out with the artist and just like leave it all on the stage as well as fulfill a lifelong dream of mine. And I like how you slipped that <laughs> off my drums. <laughs> exactly. And he was he was super, super gracious about it. Yeah. He was like, sure, let's do it. And so uh, he'd been warned beforehand that uh, I was going to pitch him this. Uh. And so I wanted him to know that he was in good hands, that I was a good drummer. And so we get up on the set and we do a run through and I'm like Radar O'Reilly all over the drums from MASH. I'm just like soloing and filling all over here. We get to the end of it and uh, he leans into the drums and he says, Chris, slow it down. Rim shots on two and four. Think Ringo. I've tried to like remember that the rest of my life is to slow it down and to think Ringo. Yeah. That That's... Actually, a pretty great uh, life philosophy right yeah. there, you know? He was simple, but he kept a beat. <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> and Phil needed me to just kind of calm down a little bit, you know? <laughs> and so, even in him saying such a deflating thing to me, was so beautiful and so gracious and peaceful, and helped me immensely, you know? So I've got video of that. I've never put video up on YouTube of me playing drums with Phil Keggy, but I'm getting close. You say tomorrow, tonight. Man, I, I just love that guy so much, and I've been with him in so many different settings, and he does a great impersonation of me. Right. He'll he'll kind of <laughs> lean in, he'll go like, Phil Keggy, Chris Hauser, Chris Hauser, Phil Keggy, <laughs> and I'm I'm endlessly entertained and touched by that. Lastly, Tony O'K. So I first noticed Tony O'K when I was in college in Syracuse, New York in the late 70s. And there were Tony O'K records, Life in the Food Chain, and reading like Steve Simmels in Stereo Review said Life in the Food Chain was the greatest record of all time. Wow. And so that was interesting to me. That's all I knew of Tony O'K during that time period. Well, in 1984, maybe 1985, I'm at a Christian radio station in Syracuse and I read liner notes and I know names and faces and all that kind of stuff. Tony O.K. starts showing up like on a Brian Duncan album and then maybe on a Randy Stonehill album, his name is listed. And I start like digging in like, what's going on? 
with this guy. Well, it turns out he's he's come to faith through the vineyard. Okay. He eventually signs a deal that's on a new co-label between Word and AM Records called What? What question mark? They put out Romeo on Chain. It's just you and me, baby. In the danger zone. We're out looking for permanent love. In the middle of a city full of broken homes. In the mid 80s, I'm deep into U2, I'm deep into T Bone Burnett, and anything that's kind of left of center, the choir and undercover and all this stuff. And so that Romeo Unchained record is surely in my top 20 of all time. It's so amazing. And so I played the snot out of it at my Christian radio station. Maybe I'm one of the few, but I played so much Tony O.K. on my AC Christian radio station in Syracuse, New York in 86. And um, I was just completely captivated by the circles he ran in. It seemed he still had respect in the mainstream, and yet here he was coming up with, you know, spiritual things to say, Christian things to say. So then when I got hired at Murr, dude, I'm telling you, I got hired in the fall of 87. It had to be like November of 87. I go with Melissa in the marketing department and have a Mexican meal uh, in downtown LA with Tony O.K. And then we go into a studio and we record something called Notes on Notes from the Last Civilization. And so I got to sit in this studio and hear him talk about all the songs on this forthcoming The Notes record. I'm no great theologian by any stretch of the imagination, but I wish I could get to where Paul was when he talked about, you know, he'd been rich, he'd been poor, he'd been up, he'd been down, you know. You know, he'd been through it, you know, from, from every end, and nevertheless, he realized that, you know, the important thing was him and God, and there was nothing that could, could keep him from that, finally. I mean, that guy could sit in a prison cell and, and whistle a tune, you know, everything was fine. He was that in touch with, you know, the Lord, his God. We've just got so many distractions, it's difficult to even remember that that's where we're supposed to be, let alone to get there. And so I was just completely out of my mind excited that I was going to get to work on a Tony O.K. record. Mm -hmm. And uh, David Miner produced it. David Miner goes way back with T-Bone Burnett. It feels like it was a little more Americana, mm -hmm. a little more acoustic and rock, where Romeo and Chain felt more kind of keys, mid 80s, mm -hmm. drum machines kind of thing. And these days it's a crime not to be beautiful. It's a crime not to be young. It's a crime to be different from everyone else. It's a crime not to always have fun. But Steve. Krikorian is his name. I did a contest somewhere around one of the songs on the record, and I got some written verbal affirmation, or some written affirmation that he really liked the, the contest that I came up with. And I was just trying to do creative things to get people to pay attention to it, you know? He held your baby. He held my baby. The artists in my life... <laughs> oh, boy. We went to a party at... Steve Krikorian's brother's house, Larry, in Silver Lake, that Chris Willman, Chris Willman, who's been a writer for Billboard, Entertainment Weekly, Variety Magazine, he's an amazing writer, W-I-L-L-M-A-N. Chris and Larry lived together in this uh, apartment. 
they had a party. It happened to be the first night I ever saw Spinal Tap. Mm. Uh, was in the late '80s. Uh, it was '88, and we brought Christopher. We brought Christopher with us everywhere. We didn't. This is your son? Yeah, our son uh, Christopher. We didn't use babysitters yet at that point, and. We love that Christopher's hair would always go straight up like a punk mm -hmm. uh, in the 80s. And we had sunglasses for him. And so I just, I was like, hey, Steve, can we get a picture with you holding Christopher? Because I, I have pictures of tons of people holding Christopher during this time period. <laughs> so we took that picture. And this is pretty embarrassing to me. But I got that picture printed in CCM Update in an industry rag like a month later. <laughs> and after it happened, I went to Tom Willett, the A&R guy, and I said, hey, I I really should have like cleared that with other people at the label because maybe you guys are working on a certain image for Tony OK <laughs> and maybe him holding babies with sunglasses maybe is not the image. And I'm, I'm really, really, truly sorry for that. And nobody, I didn't get into trouble. Right. Nobody yelled at me. Well, he, he's not smiling. That's kind of the funny part. Like, he just looks like he's just, I'm holding a baby. I know, I know. <laughs> so that, that came from that night in the fall of uh, 88. Christopher was probably about five or six months old, chewing on his finger. And <laughs> I wish I could have I never got to know him very well, but I just was always geeked out being around him. I think he's just one of the most amazing creative guys. Uh, he was just, he was incredibly philosophical. He was really, really sharp. Probably not well trained in the CCM world of here's how you answer, here's how you always bring it back around to Jesus, or you do right. this or do that. I mean, he ran in some really interesting circles out there. I was kind of a small cog in the wheel because there was the A&M piece of it as well. So there was this whole other group of people that were really trying to get him mainstream exposure. So me on the Christian side was really like, okay, let's toss this guy a bone. And he was the coolest thing we had right. in the Christian industry in 1990 by and large, right? But there was so much energy on the other side of the aisle trying to get him mainstream exposure. He's written songs for Bonnie Raitt. He's gotten songs cut by numerous artists over the years. They say it's a blessing, they say it's a gift, they say it's a miracle, and I believe that it is, it conquers all, but it's a mystery. There was a choir show at the basement a few years ago, one of their anniversary shows, and Steve was there, and he was so gracious and kind. And if you just can't get enough of Chris Hauser's stories, you might check out In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 135, where he talks Russ Taff, Amy Grant, and Steve Taylor. Also of interest might be our interview with Phil Keggy himself on episode 134. And then John J. Thompson who also talks Tony O'Kay, among other artists, on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 78. 
In the Corner, Black Rod of the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and Podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease! <laughs>